Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Chris Diglio. Welcome to today's episode of IBBA Insights. I want to thank you for for downloading today's episode and listening. And today, you're not going to be sorry because today is really a historic episode. It's a historic event that happened in the world of uh, business brokerage, the world of M&A transactions. And it's a good news for all of the individuals that are out there practicing and selling businesses. About two years ago, we did an episode of IBBA um, Insights, and we had Jim Afinowich on with Mike Ertle and John Zayak, and we talked about the Campaign for Clarity, um, which was started in 2006 for the purpose to clarify when a business broker needs to have securities license. And they kind of talked about why it was so important that we get this uh, this bill passed and why what it would mean to all of us. Well, we no longer have to talk about why it will be so important because it actually happened. And I'm very happy today to have three guests that were integral parts of of, of, of this whole process and getting this all done and really are, are champions of, of the industry. And so whether you realize it or not, or whether you appreciate what they've done or not, if you're out there and you're selling businesses, it affects each and every one of us and should make us all be able to sleep a little better at night. So I'm going to introduce my three guests today. First, we have Mike Ertle, um, who's the Managing Director of Transworld M&A Advisors and, uh, uh, I believe, co-chair of, of the Campaign for Clarity with Beef. Uh, Mike, welcome welcome to the show today. Pleasure to be here. All right, well, wonderful to have you. And uh, next guest is John Zayak, and he's the Managing Partner for IBG Business, and he's the Chair of, of Beef, which again is the Business Intermediary Education Foundation. John, my pleasure to have you on the show again. It's an honor to be here, guys. And last but not least is a gentleman who uh, had to put in a lot of work and 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 uh, and time. Shane Hansen is a partner and member of the Funds and Investment Services Practice in the law firm of Warner Norcross and Judd LLP. Shane serves as the lead securities counsel and principal draftsman of the new statutory M&A brokers exemption from broker-dealer registration with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC. Uh, this M&A brokers registration exemption was added to the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, passed by Congress and signed by President Biden into federal law on December 29th, 2022. Shane, welcome uh, to the show, and it's a pleasure to have you today. Chris, it's delighted to be on and to be able to talk about this because it's only been nearly 16 years in the making and uh, nine and a half years in Congress. So we'll look forward to talking about it. Well, what I was going to ask the three of you, I was going to say, you know, we we hear things on the on the TV and on radio and podcasts all the time and around the world of these whirlwind, you know, overnight success stories. Well, this is not one of them. This is more of a about perseverance. So after all this time, and I'll start with Mike, and I'll hear from John and Shane after that. But how do you feel now? You know, it's it, you you've you reached the what you what you started out in a long time ago, and how does it feel today? 
I feel relieved. Uh, it's been a it's been a very long and uh, a difficult struggle, and and really for no good reason. Uh, the people that we've interviewed, people that we've approached, in uh, and on the regulatory side were consistently supportive, and it's just uh, more of a testimony to how dysfunctional the Congress is that it's taken this long. John. You know, I'm actually <clears throat> really excited with the accomplishment. I recognize it's taken a lot longer and a lot more resources than any of us ever thought, but I'm excited it's done. Uh, I know so many people in the industry that have been kind of looking over their shoulder for their whole life, and now I think there is a opportunity for clarity and common sense uh, rules and legislation, and, and I'm excited for our industry. And Shane, how do you feel about this? And I'll just add, from a different point of view, the the concept is basically this. We've worked very hard and three times unanimously passed the U.S. House of Representatives in five sessions of Congress. But in each of those instances, on the Senate side of Capitol Hill, um, the Senate Banking Committee never really took up uh, the legislation and to consider it. And, and what it took uh, last December was uh, Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, uh, who had been a, a sponsor of a Senate companion version to our bill, um, asking the Senate leadership to include our bill that had already unanimously passed the House, but include our bill in the omnibus federal funding bill for fiscal year 2023 as one of the titles, um, essentially one of the tag-along uh, provisions, not really related to funding at all. But from this point of view, um, our getting this passed, uh, and it was passed by the Senate and the House and signed by the President, uh, it only cost taxpayers for the whole omnibus bill package $1.7 trillion. So, um, you know, we should be thankful. Our little bill added nothing to the federal deficit, um, uh, but it did take $1.7 trillion to get the U.S. Senate to vote for it. So we're we're good. <laughs> well, Shane, what's a couple of trillion amongst friends? Come on. <laughs> exactly. So. Exactly. Well, guys, I want to touch on a couple of things, the timeline of events. I want to talk about some other things. But before I before we go into there, I want to jump kind of ahead because we have on listening today, we'll have business brokers, M&A advisors, intermediaries that may have been practicing um, uh, the sale of businesses that were deemed to be securities uh, license requirements, but and, and maybe not even realize or maybe given this a thought that this is important to them. Why is today a victory for all business brokers and M&A advisors? Mike? Well, I, in my humble opinion, uh, an awful lot of business brokers and M&A advisors have been operating outside the law when they have been facilitating a transaction that ultimately involves securities. Uh, they typically don't start that way. Most business owners would prefer to get all cash at closing. Most buyers would prefer to buy assets and put them in a new entity so they can 
restart the depreciation clock and, and build up a, a greater tax deduction going forward and draw a hard line between any historic liabilities that won't follow the assets into a new entity. But for various good and valid reasons, um, the advisors to both the buyer and the seller may conclude that a, that a transaction involving securities makes more sense than all cash for assets. And at that point, through no fault of the intermediaries, they, they are now operating illegally. So the, the benefit of this, this bill, this uh, registration exemption, is it really changes all of that. And now, within certain parameters, and Shane will get into those later, I'm sure, uh, it's perfectly legal for a business broker or an M&A advisor to facilitate a transaction from start to finish with a privately held company that, it, that ultimately involves securities. So the business broker that's out there, they're listening and they've they've dabbled in some lower middle market transactions, but even even main uh, let's say large main street transactions where there were notes or or, or um, involved in the transaction seller notes or things that may have been deemed needed for security licensing, um, they again whether they realize it or not they weren't really they were kind of in a gray area or gray to uh, not a very good area. But today, this is a good day for them because they could sleep a little better at night because, again, now they could legally work on these type of transactions. Is that correct, John? Oh, we may have lost John. Shane, are you there? Yeah, I am. Um, I, I would I would say absolutely it brings clarity um, to the ability to handle a private company M&A transaction, really regardless of how the parties, the seller and the buyer, negotiate it to be legally structured, and uh, and it should help uh, also the M&A advisors and business brokers to To compete on a more level playing field when they're uh, in that proverbial beauty contest to secure a sell side engagement, uh, and they're up against uh, a firm, uh, individual or firm that is registered, and uh, and sometimes that is uh, you know is touted by uh, by those folks as being a competitive advantage because they have the licensing and the others don't. So this this exemption now levels that playing field. Shane, what do I also agree though? I mean, even these Main Street, I mean, all these Main Street transactions, not all, but many, many of them sometimes end up with a component called an earnout or some level of conditional payment based on performance. And that was starting, that was triggering sometimes, in many, many cases, uh, a securities transaction. Is that correct? Uh, there are clearly ways of mitigating that risk by closely tying an earnout to a purchase price calculation um, and or with a seller's note making the note expressly not assignable and tied to a holdback or a um, purchase price adjustment. But it's a risk because under federal and state securities laws, debt or notes are in the definition of a security. So are presumed to be a security unless 
It fits, the particular note fits one of a court-created series of, ex, of uh, exceptions. So, so this brings clarity to all of that. It just basically does not make a difference. With respect to the registration of the intermediary, still fair to point out this is just an exemption from registration as or with a broker-dealer. Federal and state securities laws include other uh, prohibitions like anti-fraud requiring full disclosure. Those still apply. If it's a securities transaction, those federal and state securities anti-fraud prohibitions do still apply. Uh, but as we, we would all know on this podcast, that um, the parties, the seller and the buyer, really negotiate reps and warranties and remedies and uh, would look to those primarily rather than running to the SEC or a state regulator for some kind of a, a statutory relief when their definitive uh, M&A agreement already addresses those things. Gentlemen, in just a little bit, we're going to jump into, you know, what what can we legally do now? People that were previously or still non-licensed uh, or non-securities licensed and how does it make a difference and when when you still need um, to make sure you have the licensing and, and functions of, of what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. But before we go there, I, I said earlier that this is a victory for all business brokers and M&A advisors. And, and I wanted to touch on that because I thought it was important for everyone to understand why are we doing a podcast on this? Why is it so important? Why is this a historic event that, that I mentioned? And so without that, but I, I want, without you know, we, I think we all agree that it was a big day and it was a big, a long time coming. And I jokingly said from the beginning that, you know, this an overnight success story. Ha ha. Right. But because it took a long time, started in 2006. So Mike or, or John, if you don't mind, let's kind of go backwards and give a recap of a timeline of events of how this started and, and how we ended up here today. Mike, you're a crazy story. Why don't you touch that? Yeah, you're great at that. I uh, believe it or not, back in 2004, Jim Cornell within the AMAA had had created a securities task force. Then, and by 2006, they were on a path to create their own broker dealership that would support AMAA members who were doing M&A transactions that involved securities. And then, uh, independently. Uh, IBBA was working with an attorney to get a no-action letter that, that ultimately was the CBI no-action letter that came out in November of 2006 that basically said, if you were selling 100% of the stock and you basically backed away from the transaction and let the lawyers handle it from the point in time it became clear it was going to be a stock sale, uh, they weren't going to recommend... Um, enforcement if you weren't securities licensed but it was really a very uncomfortable role for for the the M&A advisor who was going to get a pretty substantial fee to say I can't help you determine the value of your company or the value of your securities I can't really help negotiate the terms of the deal I've got to basically turn that all over to your attorney but I'll be there when it comes time for you to give me my check so uh AMAA uh, initiated a meeting of the of the major uh, professional associations and said, 
what are we going to do about this issue that's been hanging over our head for years? And in the summer of 2006, the Campaign for Clarity was uh, born, and we engaged Shane Hansen and his firm to help us meet with the SEC to see if we couldn't pursue. Uh, uh, it was called the Campaign for Clarity because we weren't sure whether there was going to come out that all business brokers needed to be securities licensed or whether there would be some opportunity for there to be a limited exemption from having to have a securities license. And as it's turned out, it took us 16 years, but uh, there is now a, an exemption from registration for business brokers and M&A advisors who are facilitating transactions at uh, uh, privately held companies that meet certain conditions um, and, and can do so legally without, without fear of having to have a securities license. Um, and I'll, I'll just add to Mike's comments the uh, the initial work that, in particular, IBBA did with uh, the CBI letter, uh, working with SEC staff, really helped educate the SEC staff. This is within the SEC Division of Trading and Markets that regulates broker-dealers. And uh, in, in that uh, important step along the way in 2006, the, the country business no-action letter, kind of set the table a little bit for what the M&A brokers um, do. And, uh, and so when, um, when on behalf of the Campaign for Clarity, we met with SEC staff in the fall of 2006, we, we got a very favorable reception from the staff and to the point where um, uh, they were interested in rulemaking, and we then, in 2007, developed a model—not uh, a model, but actually a rule—for the SEC staff's consideration that would create the exemption that Mike's describing. And and we did have a, a very warm reception with the SEC staff. Um, and on a parallel track, um, we also in 2007 uh, hosted a day-long program for state securities regulators because state regulators apply the, their own laws that very closely track with the uh, Securities and Exchange Act. So a day-long program uh, for uh, the Illinois Commissioner and the Texas Commissioner and their staff really explaining what M&A uh, transactions of private companies involve. And, uh, <clears throat> and so the, the effort began really 2006, 2007 um, uh, in, in getting it going. And, and Mike, maybe you want to comment about the, the folks who were part of the village that really um, moved this along. Oh, gosh, uh, there were so many. Uh, Certainly, Jim Cornell uh, from the from the AMAA side, and uh, Jim had a personal relationship with Brian Higgins, who's a Democratic representative on the House Financial Services Committee, and he was our first Democrat co-sponsor with uh, Congressman Heisinger, who introduced the bill. So it was bipartisan from day one, and and that wouldn't have happened without without Jim Cornell's connections. Uh, Mike Adakari has been a long Standing champion and has personally contributed over fifty thousand uh, dollars to finance the campaign. Uh, Todd Cushing 
uh, from the early days com uh, committed to, to contribute 2% of every success fee he earned until the bill got passed, and he's contributed close to $60,000 personally. Uh, Bob Garola was one of our early co-chairs, and he, he has since uh, passed away. Jim uh, Jeff Taylor was our uh, boots on the ground as a lobbyist who was uh, running information back and forth across Capitol Hill to keep people informed about what we were trying to do. And he, he passed away last year. Uh, so there were quite a number of people involved in this effort uh, over the over the long history of the campaign. And and Mike Knoll kind of brought the families together in Chicago for a meeting of the the families I call them the the, uh, the associations uh, <laughs> meeting of the five families and, and Mike really put the uh, the good faith and credit of the AMAA behind the campaign uh, they were until until BIEF stepped up and and took over the financial responsibility it was being borne by AMAA and we wouldn't we wouldn't have gotten off the ground. Without that, uh, without that commitment, so we we are indebted to a lot of people to uh, to have achieved this milestone. It's and I would add to that, Chris, a little bit. Um, candidly, Mike Girdle has always said since day one, as we've been working on this for so many years, um, that success would have a thousand fathers and failure would be an, an orphan. In this particular case, guys, and, and Mike and Shane, tell me what your thoughts are. We have over a thousand, more than a thousand people that have contributed to this process. Yes, many, many were just financial contributors, but we've got the International Business Brokers Association, the MA Source, so many different organizations that have contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to support this endeavor because they knew it was right for the industry, for their members. So it's, it's such a broad village, as you say, Shane, of people that have helped and supported both financially and, and in their outreach to you know their local representatives. So this has been a massive undertaking um, with just fantastic results because deals do morph into security transactions. So this is certainly a great day for our industry. And, and I just well, add, John, that the 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 fact that the, the the national associations have boots on the ground in basically every 50 states um and when we were calling on members of congress to to lobby on behalf of the legislation uh starting in 2013 and forward uh we would always have um members of the IBBA MNA source or AMNAA who were from the state that um, we were calling upon the congressman's staff or the senator's staff to really try to, you know, connect the dots between this federal legislation for the whole country and and the specific states and the constituents in those states, both small business owners who did participate in some of the calls. Um, as as well as uh, the uh, professionals who uh, who serve them. You know that's well said, and and I'm remiss in not identifying that all these state association, all these state uh, chapters uh, were absolutely outstanding in, in carrying that message to their to their communities and to their local representatives. I was on the call yesterday. 
Christmas martini on that. And it's just unbelievable how much and how many people put time into this endeavor. You guys thought you were very close several times along the way, right? There, there were uh, at least well, there one or, or a couple of times where you you went through the house, but and 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 thought we were we were there, and then I, I think from the first time it was unanimously uh, or, or 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 passed. Then it took how many years at that point to actually get the Senate to to get through the Senate? Well, the the process is that's correct. The process is Congress has uh, two year sessions that coincide with the term of congressman. And so um, any legislation that's going to be passed in a session has to be passed within that two-year period. At the end of the two-year period, anything that has not yet passed is simply dead. It's going no further. You have to start over. And so um, we were thrilled at unanimously passing the House um, and uh, and frustrated when the Senate basically did did not really pick up the baton and, and run with it. The bill in subsequent sessions of Congress, and each time we tweaked it just a little bit, um, because by 2014, about two weeks after the bill unanimously passed the House, the SEC staff came out with really the, the second major milestone in this effort, and that was the 2014 SEC staff merger and acquisition brokers no action letter that really expressed um, the view of the staff at the SEC that registration should not be required. Um, uh, the no action letter, of course, has a major drawback. It's not legally binding on anybody, not even the commission. So it doesn't change the law. It merely expresses the view of the SEC staff. But in doing that, hugely helpful for us in, in the subsequent years in lobbying members of Congress. First, we had to explain what a no action letter is. So that's one of the reasons it's not the greatest solution. Um, it can be changed. It can be withdrawn. Um, so it's not a great solution to the problem. But a major milestone, because we actually had a public statement from the SEC staff that registration of M&A brokers as a broker-dealer in securities transactions, would they would not recommend enforcement. And that's kind of a funny way of saying it, but that's the way no-action letters work. But to, the, to your point, the, um, that milestone helped us build another step in the process and and we could explain to members of Congress um, that the staff had spoken and uh, expressed their view that registration would not be required under the conditions in both the no action letter and now finally in the, the legislation. And the bill subsequently in the last nine and a half years, twice, uh, unanimously passed the House, uh, but until this past December, um, never got past the Senate. Um, we're there now, though. So, well, Congratulations. And again, I, I've said this many times, and I'll say it many times over and over again. I thank all of you. I thank the associations. I thank all the individuals, even those that are no longer with us or the, the, the got it started off in the early stages, and those with the perseverance to see it through to the to the to where we're at today uh, again the business brokerage world um owes all of you 
uh, a debt of gratitude because, again, whether they know it or not, um, this was uh, very important for all of us. Um, so we talk about the history a little bit. And we've talked about why this is a big victory, and we've talked a little bit about what it means. So let, let's dig a little deeper, and uh, whichever one, whoever wants to answer this question was, is fine with me, but I, I think I'd like to touch on what is it now that non-security uh, license brokers or advisors can do that they legally couldn't do before, and then what and why, let's talk about the transaction limits or the limitations that they need to work under. Sure. I'm, I'm happy to run with that. So, so first up is I just to start to mention the 2014 no action letter. Um, that was part of the village, actually. The six lawyers who were um, named on the no action letter, having requested it, were all professional friends um, in the American Bar Association, and uh, and that was the medium through which the staff could express its uh, public policy view. Uh, the no action letter um, had no size cap, so there there is in the legislation now in effect, uh, actually effective March 29th of 2023, so 90 days after the effective date. There there is a size cap. It does have to be a private company, no registered securities with the SEC, no publicly traded securities, but private company, the the target company, we'll call it. Um, does have a size limitation in the legislation that was not in the no action letter. So it's important to make that point. Um, the no action letter didn't have a size cap because the SEC had no economic data on which to, to, to base any kind of decision. And, and frankly, their view was the larger the transaction, the less need for an investor protection. So um, the, the fact that there are size caps in the legislation, now in the act, um, were really a political necessity. Um, uh, the, the, the leadership in the campaign for clarity um, and, 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 and me and a large number of people really widely and, and, and at length discussed size caps as a really political necessity because we anticipated, and it turned out to be true, that the Wall Street Investment Banking Association's SIFMA, or the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association, would uh, would likely oppose it because this our exemption would would r remove a barrier to entry of competitors in the M&A uh, professional services business. And uh, and so we did include size caps and widely vetted them uh, within the industry and included alternate metrics. So the size cap is stated in the alternative that the target company have, as of its last fiscal year, um, gross revenues of not more than $250 million um, and or $25 million in EBITDA. And the rationale for the two metrics is simply this, that some companies have high gross, low margins, some have uh, have high profit and, and low gross. So the alternate metrics really were designed to fit uh, different industries that uh, M&A brokers work in when they turn to sell the business. So 
Um, those two metrics um, uh, do represent the size cap. In vetting it, we've come to understand, and Mike and John, you're welcome to chime in, that, that the size caps really cover uh, substantially all of the middle market kind of transactions. Um, thoughts on the size? basically pull them uh, within within the Wall Street uh, vernacular they think of a small cap company as having 300 million in market cap or more and so we we successfully argued that a, a um, micro cap company or a nano cap company was smaller than small and therefore, uh, uh, the, the metrics that, that Shane has described really uh, are smaller than small cap companies. And so this is only to benefit smaller businesses. But as uh, experienced professionals, uh, it's rare that we run into a business that has more than 25 million in EBITDA or 250 million in sales. So it seems to be a broad enough um, threshold that most of the transactions we would ever do are going to be covered by this exemption. And gentlemen, that's why I said this was a victory because 99, probably 99.9% .9 of the people listening to this show or, or that are members of the associations that we, that we've spoke about the deals they work on are more than likely all falling under underneath these parameters. Uh, those are, those are some pretty high marks. So, that is why I, I believe it's it, it's so important uh, because again it, it does affect all of the the transactions the majority of the ones that the members of these associations uh, predominantly work on. Agreed. The the, uh, the rare exception would be a small but publicly traded company an over, over the counter stock or a pink sheet company. I just did a transaction at uh, eight million in revenue. But they uh, they're traded on on uh, over the counter, and so they're publicly traded, and they do not qualify for the M and A broker exemption. And Mike, that was that's a an perfect segue one. into the, the next question. And, and we talk about okay, great, this was a victory, all the things you're able to do now. But you know, it's certainly still not going to be the wild wild west. So there's still things that non-security licensed uh, brokers or advisors are not going to be able to do. You just mentioned one of them, but what are some of the other things, again, to beware of getting involved with if you're not licensed? Sure. Um, the uh, the important thing to, to remember here is the context. Getting the SEC and state regulators and members of Congress on board with this, we were really right-sizing what is a one-size-fits-all regulatory regime um, to, to tailor it down with investor protections, which is to say the buyers' protections and sellers, um, protections that are relevant to M&A transactions. So um, uh, in, in creating the exemption, there are a number of parameters, we'll call them guardrails, that the SEC wanted and, and, and members of Congress uh, wanted to see that basically define the scope of the exemption. And as Mike mentioned, um, publicly traded companies, uh, including even small ones that are 
commonly considered uh, traded in the pink sheets, which is an old-fashioned way of talking about sheets that were pink that had quotes, uh, stock quotes on them. Um, those were not eligible for the exemption because there are so many being publicly traded uh, with SEC filings uh, and special concerns around insider trading. Um, publicly traded companies' stock um, cannot be sold under this exemption. Um, and so it's really focused on private companies don't have securities registered with the SEC. And, and that was important to the regulators in as much as um, private companies, buyers and sellers, negotiate their own remedies, rights, remedies, reps, warranties. There, there are no SEC filings to refer to. There is um, uh, none of the public company stuff that really makes those transactions way more complicated. So. So that's one of the guardrails. It, it does not allow for handling the sale of a public company's securities. That said, let me highlight a nuance here. It doesn't preclude, in fact allows, an M&A broker to handle the sale of a subsidiary of a publicly traded company because the stock of the subsidiary is not publicly traded. Um, so it would be fine for a public company to spin off a subsidiary or a division, and that would be eligible for this this exemption. Um, and uh, a, a similar consideration, um, while you can't sell a public company, um, a public company can be a buyer um, where the privately owned company is being sold to a public company. That works as well. That's within the exemption. Um, some other guardrails. Um, the exemption uh, is predicated on the buyer being um, someone who acquires control. Um, the good news here is that the level of control uh, down to 25% ownership or uh, ownership rights is a fairly low threshold and uh, is presumed to constitute control. Um, and then in addition, the buyer needs to be actively involved in the management of the company uh, or a new company created with the assets after the closing. And here, the SEC and, and, the, and the exemption is really quite broad, it can be direct or indirect, um, can be literally um, being a member of the board of directors, uh, an executive officer. Um, the board can approve the budget for the company. And so that active involvement um, is, is fairly easily satisfied. And the, the exemption does include some examples, but it's a non-exclusive list and would, would commonly be satisfied. Some other things you, that the exemption does not cover, um, you can't go out and form, the M&A broker can't go out and form a syndication uh, or a group of buyers to come in and pick off pieces of the company. Um, buyers can, uh, multiple buyers can be involved, um, but the M&A broker is not permitted to sort of form a group to do that. Um, the M&A broker is not permitted to have custody or handle the cash or the securities in the transaction. 
that's easily satisfied because the seller and the buyer, you know, usually wire transfer the money between their own banks with the lawyers controlling the closing. So the M&A broker is pretty much never in the role of having custody or handling the consideration being exchanged at closing. Um, another important um, uh, a guardrail is that the M&A broker cannot legally bind a party to the transaction. That seems like kind of an odd uh, parameter, but it essentially distinguishes from a retail stockbroker um, who, if they put in an order to sell uh, or to buy a security, that legally binds their customer. So, so, and, and at the same time in the M&A context, an M&A broker just does not ever legally bind, you know, a seller or a buyer to an M&A transaction. Another important one, um, guardrail is that there's no direct or indirect financing of the M&A transaction permitted. So, for example, a commercial bank can't have an affiliated M&A broker where the bank is going to provide commercial financing for the transaction. Similarly, the SEC was very concerned about private equity firms who were taking a success fee on either buying or selling portfolio companies um, and pocketing the success fee. Um, the, the private equity firms have from time to time kind of said, well, wait a minute, we're, not, we're, we're, we're benefiting our, our shareholders, our, our fund and investors. And the, the SEC said, no, you're not. You're pocketing that yourself. You're, you're not, you know, contributing that success fee to the, uh, to the private equity fund, uh, investors. So, so, uh, the M&A broker cannot be directly or indirectly involved in financing the M&A transaction, uh, in order to qualify within the exemption. Um, and then finally, there's a, a, statutory disqualification um, provision that says that you can't rely on the exemption if, if the M&A broker or any of its directors or officers have been barred from the securities industry um, or they, they, if they are registered, the registration's been suspended by the SEC, by FINRA, or by a state regulator. And that's just basically designed to keep the bad actors out of the, you know, kind of the back door in uh, uh, preventing them from relying on the exemption. So those are kind of the, the thou shalt nots uh, if you're going to rely on the exemption. They're all laid out in the statutory uh, language in the exemption. Um, and they are all really very easily satisfied in the the very prototypical private company M&A transaction. John, John or Mike, anything to add on those? Not for me, Mike. I would only, I would only say that uh, one thing you are able to do is sell a fractional interest in a company, which I think prior to this clarification, a lot of business brokers will have the impression that they could only sell 100% of the company. That was kind of the, the guidance from the CBI no action letter. And uh, a lot of business brokers would shy away from a transaction where somebody wanted to sell 50% of the company to, or two partners, one wanted to sell, one wanted to stay. Uh, where do you find a broker to help you do that? You, you can now do that under this exemption. 
Yes, that's a very good point to make because um, if you go all the way down to the 25% ownership level, um, uh, and that is basically ownership of the stock or ownership of the uh, LLC membership interests, um, or the right to receive 25% of the capital if, if the entity is liquidated, is a way lower threshold. And as long as, again, the the second part of that condition is that they be active, the buyer be actively involved. That is to say, they cannot be a passive investor. But um, it does allow essentially um, the ability um, to have a, 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 an M&A transaction involving uh, somebody coming in that is not, like you say, it's not buying the whole thing. They're buying a fractional interest or buying out one of the owners and stepping into that owner's shoes. Well, guys, we're running a little short on time. I have a lot of questions left, but I'm going to limit it to two um, because I think it's sure. important for us to be able to touch on these things. So you have the individual that's out there right now. They're listening to this. They're they're excited. They're they're thrilled. They're jumping through hoops. They're like, wow, woohoo! You know, they're like, okay, so I've been paying all of these fees to my broker dealer through throughout the years, and 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 now this 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 is in place. Um, do I still need uh, to to meet all the of the FINRA's professional registration and qualifications, or can I drop them? How can I drop them today? When should I drop them? You know, what what would you say to that individual? Sure. You know, um, this is John. I would say it, it depends a lot on your practice because you know we still can't raise funds and and do other actions. Um, but it is expensive. You know, it's over a hundred grand a year for us to be registered and have compliance and all the monitoring. Everything that we have to do is monitored. What would you add to it, Shane? I agree. Uh, very much dependent on the activities that the professional uh, and the firm are involved with. Capital raising is not covered, but but if you're only involved in private company M&A transactions that fit within the guardrails, uh, the conditions in the exemption, um, the individual or the if their firm is registered as a broker dealer could very much consider dropping them. Uh, with a couple caveats, uh, Im important to understand that when you do terminate your registration, individually filing a Form U-5, uh, corporately uh, uh, withdrawing your broker-dealer registration, filing a Form BDW, that it starts a two-year window that if you change your mind, you've got two years to re-register with another existing broker-dealer. But after that two years, you will lose the benefit of the uh, FINRA and state um, qualification exams. So, so there's a two-year clock that starts upon filing those um, termination or withdrawal filings. Um, so you do want to be sure that this is, in fact, what your kind of future looks like because you will, you know, at some point, you have a two-year grace period, but after that, you would have to, if you wanted to get back into registration, you'd have to retake all of the exams, and that that's never a pleasant thought. Um, the other, and I'll use this as a segue uh, as well, um, 
The other consideration is the exemption is federal law. It, it's, of course, federally, you know, applicable in all 50 states, the District of Columbia and uh, Puerto Rico and Guam. But, but parallel uh, regulation occurs in each of those 50 states, the District of Columbia, Guam, and Puerto Rico. And to date, we've got, um, as part of the uh, Campaign for Clarity, we're really thrilled to say we've got 20 states on board that have either adopted by law, by rule, by order, or by interpretive no-action letter, uh, have granted similar M&A-specific exemptive relief. But, but that's 20. That's not 50, and that doesn't include the District of Columbia. So um, the other, uh, tying back to John's point, depending on your practice and where you're located, the state law of your home state, wherever you have a place of business, will be relevant. And, and before dropping your registrations, you would want to be sure that your home state in particular has exemptive relief under your state law. Then other states' laws may also apply if a seller is in California, a buyer is in New York, you're in Ohio. Uh, all three states' laws have jurisdiction. And so you want to think about the states in which you usually conduct business, where your parties are. There's not nearly the, the level of risk. The regulators are, state regulators are not out looking for these kinds of violations. But you do still run the risk of civil claims that you're not entitled to your fee because you're not state registered, meaning there's no state level exemption uh, in a state that has jurisdiction. So, uh, so that's another consideration in um, whether or not to drop your uh, existing registrations and, and licensing. Um, but that's also a fairly good segue to what we still need to do, what's left to be done. Um, Chris, so I'll kick it back to you. Yeah, I was going to ask about that next. So you've done the heavy lifting, but it doesn't mean everything's over and, and there's nothing left to do. Mike, if you don't mind touching on that a little bit, what what is there left to do? Because it doesn't seem like it's the, the job is completely finished, but it, it shifted a little bit and what still needs to be done. Well, I, I think that uh, Shane's made the point that uh, facilitating a securities transaction is one of the rare uh, commercial activities that's regulated by both federal and state law. And the fact that you're compliant with federal law does not exempt you from being in compliance with state law. And as he points out, if the buyer's in one state and the seller's in another state and you're in a third state, all three state laws can come into play. So the next thing we've got to do is get the states to adopt similar regulatory relief. And 20 states have already done so, but 30 states remain in a, in a, in a handful of territories. What I can report from personal experience in Florida is it is much, much, much easier to get the attention of and get action from a state uh, legislature than it has been uh, to get federal uh, congressional uh, action. And in the state of Florida, it took us really just one session. Uh, they're only in, in session for a couple of months out of the year. There's some planning that goes on between sessions. We caught, we caught the wave such that we could do all the planning before the next session. 
and we got it passed in one session of, of uh, the state legislature. I think now that federal uh, law has been amended, a lot of the 30 states that were waiting on uh, on the sidelines were probably just waiting to see what the federal government was finally going to do. And now that that's clear, I think that the other 30 states may, may come along uh, fairly easily, but it's probably going to take uh, business brokers and M&A advisors in each state to reach out to their uh, state securities regulators and say, this is important in our state. How soon can we expect you to change the law and grant similar relief? And in, if you get to that point and you're, you're looking for help, I can highly recommend that you contact Shane Hansen because he knows the state law and he, frankly, for the, for his whole career has been building personal relationships with state regulators. Uh, and uh, can tell you almost at a, uh, uh, on your initial call what's going to likely be the uh, the lay of the land in the state that you need to to get uh, relief granted in. Uh, he just knows the people that well. And I would add, Mike, to that point. Um, at the state level, you have more levers for influence. Um, Absolutely contacting the state regulator to ask, um, now that the federal law has been changed, would you change state law? Um, because if you don't ask, you don't get. Um, so that's absolutely the first kind of place to stop. And it's helpful to do that um, with the imprimatur of a state or regional association. It's not just an individual business broker. Uh, firm uh, involved, it's actually an association of them that gives a little more clout. But at the state level, there are also the avenues of working with the governor's office and usually the economic development agency of that governor's office, um, really helping to develop state the economy in the state and the importance of small business growth through mergers and acquisitions. So um, the governor's office and or the state economic development agency can be very influential um, both um, in, in sort of putting some, uh, we'll call it political pressure on the state regulatory agency to kind of come along and harmonize with federal law. Uh, and then finally, uh, in Mike's example in Florida is uh, spot on. In some states, uh, and I can say Ohio and Virginia and a few others, actually have kind of um, partial exemptions that the, the administrators are uh, reticent about doing something by rule when there's already um, a partial exemption in the state law. So you really have to go to the state legislature, um, and I, with the beauty of the breadth of the associations uh, is really they have boots on the ground in uh, all of the states and connections. Many have political connections with their state legislatures, and so working the sort of the political levers through the governor and economic development agencies and, and the state legislatures. Uh, and that's what you did in Florida, Mike. That might be a good place to kind of wind up. How how did you get it done in Florida? Well, the the, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention that's uh, that's helpful is the North American Security Administrators Association 
has formally adopted their model state rule that that parallels the no action letter language and the language in our bill. And so most of the state legislature, most of the state regulators have already voted for this. There there will be a few exceptions, but uh, now that the federal law has changed and the NASA has has uh, formally approved this model state rule, they just need some encouragement to get their house in order and get get harmonized with with what's happening around them. Um, in my case, we started with the state with the, the uh, state regulator's office, and they were of the opinion that we needed to get a uh, the legislature to take action. And so I approached my state senator that represents my uh, geographic area and met with him in person and uh, happened to be a, a businessman who understood mergers and acquisitions. And uh, uh, he took it upon himself to line up somebody in the house. And uh, they got parallel bills started on each side of the house and passed them in the next session. So was fairly straightforward even before federal law had, had passed but you know the no action letter was was uh, was in hand and the uh, and the NASA model C rule was in hand so it was coming and they uh, they jumped on it well guys I want to thank you and I appreciate all the information you've shared with everyone today but also all the years of hard work and effort uh, that you've put in. So before we close out the show, I'll, uh, Mike, I'll, Mike Erdahl, I'll ask, do you have any uh, parting comments? Well, I just want to echo something that John Zayak said about the, the contribution of time and effort and, and financial support that all of the national associations and all of the state and regional associations have contributed. We, uh, we could not have done this without without uh, uh, substantial and continuing financial support from all of those folks. And they really, they share equally in this success. Well, thank you for that, Mike, and thank you for all you've done, and thank you for being on the show. Uh, John Zayak, John, any, any final words for the audience? No, just thanks to the industry. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's a historic accomplishment. And as Mike and Shane were alluding to it, there's still more to be done. Uh, candidly, uh, we still have some outstanding financial obligations that we need to take care of that uh, have been carried over for the last few years. So we still need to, to continue to, to fund this endeavor to wrap it up in the next six months and then work with the state associations to make sure we get these other 30 states uh, harmonized with the, the federal federal guidelines and rules now. So, John, all of us that are listening that benefit from all of the hard work that went on, there are bills that were left behind and, and will still be needing to be paid. How is it that someone can contribute if they, if they, if they feel like they, they want to do that? I think the easiest methodology is to look at the Beef Foundation webpage, and it's beef, B-I-E-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. And there you'll understand that Beef is not just dedicated to this one cause. It's dedicated to providing other support services to the industry and promoting our industry in general. Uh, but there, there is a link to make contributions. And I would also encourage you to watch the matching 
contributions that are going to be coming out from each of the associations, including the state and national. Thank you very much, John, again, for all that you've done and all that you continue to do. Uh, I know I greatly appreciate it. And um, last but not least, uh, Shane Hansen. Shane, any parting words for the audience today? Well, I would simply say this. It's been a privilege and a career highlight to, to be able to work on this. Um, working with a great uh, and diverse team um, as we've moved from what was initially kind of a regulatory stage, working with the SEC and state regulators to moving it into Congress and a legislative stage, and and, and finally uh, having it passed and signed into law in December becomes effective uh, March uh, 29th of this year. Uh, and it's just been a privilege to have been a, a part of that. So thank you for including me on the program, too. I very much enjoy it. No, thank you for participating. It was uh, certainly my pleasure. So everyone listening out there, again, I'd like to thank Mike Ertel, John Zayak, Shane Hansen for taking an hour today to be with us and to go over and, and share all the great news with you and, and all the years that they've put and time and effort that they've put into this. I highly encourage all of you, whether it be Mike or John or Shane or Jim Afinowich or Mike Adakari or Andy Cagnetta or any of the other ones that were involved, and you can see the different members on the Beef uh, website, Shoot them an email, send them a text, tell them thank you, because they, you owe it to them. Tell them thank you. I'm doing it right now. I've done it several times, and I'll continue to say thank you, because what it means to me of being in this industry for 23 years myself. So, again, take the time, show your gratitude, give them a thank you. I know they would certainly uh, appreciate it. So, just a reminder to listen to uh, other episodes of IBBA Insights. You can go to our website, ibba.org slash insights. Once you're there, just click on the Apple, Android, or email icon. This way you never have to miss another episode again. I want to thank you again for letting me be part of your day. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of IBBA Insights. Thanks, guys. Hey, thank you. Very thank much you, appreciate it, Chris. Uh, I'll, we'll get this up and out uh, quickly, and then we'll go from there. I appreciate all of your time today. Thank you so much. You are Great. so Mike, awesome. I'll follow Thanks. up with you later today. All right. Take Bye, care. gentlemen. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Shane, take care, my friend. Bye-bye. Hey, likewise, Jen. Have a safe trip. Bye-bye. <laughs>